Minasan konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric, and I sincerely thank you for tuning into our podcast today. We know there's tons of board game podcasts, and we couldn't be happier that you've clicked on ours. Today is the last in our series of the history of board games, and we will be talking about Catan, modern board gaming, how technology has changed the industry, and where the industry might go next. It's been a month of covering history, and we've only skimmed the surface. Some of you might have noticed the absence of large genres of games such as RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, war games, collectible card games like Magic the Gathering, and word games, but we did that intentionally because we promise you we are going to be covering those more in depth in the future. And speaking of future topics, thank you to those who messaged us on Twitter and Instagram. We got some really great ideas for future topics that we are excited to research and bring to you. If you have ideas for future topics or any feedback for us as new content creators, or if you want to bring your expertise to the show, please feel free to message us on Twitter at BGDojo, Instagram at BoardGameDojo, or on our YouTube. The links to those will be in the description. We want to engage with you as much as possible, so please don't hesitate to even just say hey. So without further ado, let us begin our last part of the series, and we will start in West Germany with a man named Klaus Tuber. In the 1980s and 1990s, he ran a dental laboratory and, to relieve some stress, developed games and brought them to his friends. His first game was called Barbarossa, and I think he actually describes it best himself in an interview. According to him, he was inspired by Patricia McKillop's Riddle Master Fantasy Trilogy, in which wizards are devoted to the creation of riddles and riddle-solving tournaments. He further stated, As you know, there are moments when you close a book really sad that it's over. After finishing the last page, you often feel like you've lost a friend, to be somewhat melodramatic. So I was looking for a way to keep the book alive a little longer. Creating a game seemed the perfect solution. In this game, I was looking for a way to make riddles, to experiment with shapes, and to let the players express their own creativity with clay. Nowadays, we actually call this feeling a book hangover, and there have been many studies about it. Essentially, when we feel hungover after reading a book, it's because of two things, empathy and emotional transportation. When we feel empathy for the characters, we feel emotionally connected to them, and losing them is like losing a friend that we've made. There's also emotional transportation, and like the name suggests, this is when we feel transported into the reality of the book. We lose track of time and place in this world, and become ingrained in the characters and setting of the narrative we are reading about. What's fascinating about this is that some studies show that people who read more have higher levels of empathy because of this emotional transportation. But while being hungover sounds like a bad thing, I think many of us don't really enjoy the morning after when we drink a lot. Book hangovers can actually be a positive thing. Sure, there's sadness at the end, but it can be personally transformative when something happens in the book that alters our thinking or the way in which we see the world. It can make us more apt to change ourselves or take action. And this seems to be what Tuber talks about. He was so upset at finishing the books that he wanted to take action to continue the story. He continued fine-tuning his game of Barbarossa, and it was picked up by Cosmos and published in 1988, when it won the Game of the Year Award, or Spiel des Arts. To understand how big of a deal this is, we need to take a brief step back and explore how big board games are in Germany. 
According to Tristan Schwenson, an archivist for Ravensburger, a huge German publisher, perceptions of board games changed after World War II. In West Germany, board games went from something you play as a kid to something associated with togetherness and wholesomeness. Newspapers put reviews of board games next to reviews of movies and books, and board gaming became so important in the culture that West Germany became the world's biggest consumers of board games per person. Board gaming was not just for kids, it was for everyone. Linguistically, the word for board game is spiel, but spiel is also a conjugation of the word for play, spielen. Games are so important that, language-wise, games and play are the same word. Furthermore, there's an interesting distinction of how designers are credited for the game. In Germany, designers are called authors, and the name is plastered on the box much like other countries plaster the author's names on the front of the book. And like the most popular authors like Stephen King in the U.S. and Haruki Murakami in Japan, the top board game authors like Dr. Reiner Knizia and Uwe Rosenberg have quite the following and in some cases are household names. But... Even though board games were popular, they didn't get much attention. So a group of journalists decided to start an award for the best game that year. The criteria was that the game must have been published in German and could be games anyone could play, not just hobbyists. After a slow start, the awards became meaningful, with the winners almost guaranteed to become bestsellers and sell thousands of copies. Publishers coveted the award. Which is why it was so amazing that... In 1988, Tuber won the award as a first-time designer. Barbarossa sold well, but not well enough that he could quit his job. But then, in the early 90s, his dental practice neared bankruptcy due to new healthcare policies in Germany. Like a good book, Tuber decided to escape into making games, where he picked as a theme for his new games something he had always been interested in since he was a child. Vikings specifically in how they traded and their adventures. Like, what would they need to do to establish settlements when there were none in Iceland? What started as a complex game of fleeing pirates, sailing seas, and creating metropolises was boiled down over time into a game in which every turn was just roll, trade, and buy. One of my favorite things I came across when researching this topic was that this whole process was a family affair. Klaus playtested the game with his two sons, Guido and Benny. He would put a Mickey Mouse comic book next to Benny, the younger one, and if he ever saw Benny choose to read the comic while playing, he knew the game was too boring. I just think that's an absolutely adorable way of playtesting and probably helps streamline the experience of Catan. One of the reasons that it was so pioneering was that you really cared about each person's turn. You never knew when they were going to roll something that gave them the resources you need, or they would take an achievement you were going for. And it's all done peacefully. Catan players can only achieve victory by trading with others. Unlike games of Monopoly, players aren't forced to hand over their cities if they go bankrupt, and unlike Risk, you can't conquer another's land. You have to play with each other, even if you're playing against one another. And this is one of the hallmarks of so-called Euro games, the incentive for socialness. Along with these incentives, there are other core parts that make a Euro game a Euro game. One would be low randomness. Outcomes of a game should be dictated by player decisions, not so-called fate. Who needs dice? It's strategy and planning that win the game. 
how good players do with their decision-making relative to the other players at the table, as well as how well they adjust those plans, is the hallmark of a Euro game. Moreover, games should not have player elimination so everyone can play until the very end of the game, which, by the way, has mechanisms to keep the end game relatively short, unlike other games that can last for hours and hours. Eurogames became synonymous with streamlined rules that didn't take long to learn but still offered complex decisions that kept people wanting to return to try another plan. And part of that is in what some call rubber banding, which is the idea that there won't be a runaway leader because there will be parts of the game that allow those losing to catch up. A great example of this is in Mario Kart, where those in the back of the race get better items than those at the front. By rubber banding, it keeps people feeling like they could always win and would be willing to try again some other time. These were not, by any stretch, inventions of Catan, but Catan did encompass all of them. But what was different about Catan was that, unlike other strategy games at the time, that the sales never slipped. It won the game of the year, got the sales bump, but then kept rising. Year after year, sales continued to rise, even becoming so popular that grocery stores carried copies. At this point in time, German games were not popular across the pond at all. Mostly, people got their information about these games from self-made fanzines, with almost no reasonably priced way of acquiring these games, let alone get them in English. But a combination of things would bring these games over to the masses and get more people interested. Technology and Mayfair. Mayfair was a company, now unfortunately out of business, but ahead of their time. Run by Darwin Bromley, their goal was to bring German games to the U.S., after several years, an employee named Jay Tummelson persuaded Bromley to take the best German games and, instead of just bringing them over, translate them. So, of course, what game did they go with was as one of their first games? Catan. And in 2000, Scott Alden and Dirk Solkel started BoardGameGeek.com, a database for hobbyists to create forums to rank, discuss, and recommend games. It gave a central place for those interested to communicate with each other about the newest games, especially this new one called Catan. Forums opened up about strategies and buzz for the game accelerated throughout the states. Soon, new companies popped up. Tummelson started Rio Grande Games, another publisher with the goal of bringing these Euro games to North America. Z-Man Games and Days of Wonder, two household names to hobbyists, also started around this time to tap into this new craze. This is not to say that Catan was a mainstream sensation, yet. That would take until the end of the 2000s, when, weirdly enough, Silicon Valley invigorated the Eurogame industry, most notably Catan. It was the most popular game in Silicon Valley, played by people like LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman, Mozilla CEO John Lilly, and even Facebook hosted Catan competitions. One Silicon Valley executive stated that it was the equivalent of executive golf because none of us have time to play 18 holes, but we can handle a pizza in a board game. Catan started getting celebrities playing too, with actresses, NFL players, and other entertainers publicly stating that the game was among their favorites. It made its way onto shows like Parks and Rec, The Big Bang Theory, and of course, The Simpsons. Euro games were suddenly here to stay, and the 2000s became a battleground in board gaming. And what I think is often overlooked about Catan's impact is that it opened people's eyes to different cultures, games, and styles. Catan wasn't revolutionary in the eyes of German people. Games before and after Catan mostly looked the same. What changed was the audience. 
suddenly people from abroad were interested in this German style of game. And when Catan came over and got popular, people wanted more. Carcassonne followed in 2001, Ticket to Ride in 2004, Kalis in 2005, and Dominion in 2008. Tom Vassell, in his excellent video with Rado that I invite you to check out, makes an interesting observation that, seemingly, the 90s and early 2000s were about the German game, then came French and Italian designs, and finally, in the early 2010s, you got Asian games. Each of those offered something unique to international audiences. German games offered a streamlined design, Italian games offered machine-like systems and engines like in Lorenzo Il Magnifico, and Japanese games offered quirky small boxes like Love Letter or Machikoro. And more and more, what happens is that board gaming becomes its own industry with more than a handful of companies. You start to get companies that specialize in certain kinds of games or in importing and translating games from a certain country. And what happens with this increased competition is innovation. Again, I can't go into detail on all of these because we will be here forever. And I'll definitely cover these in future episodes, but I wanted to go over a few innovations that have left their mark. In 2011, Rob Davio designed Risk Legacy, a game that lasted for 15 plays in which players would be physically transforming the map by applying stickers and ripping cards in two. It was interesting for two reasons. One, Risk, a game that had been left aside a bit by Eurogamers, was suddenly more interesting and strategic. But second, it opened the door for a campaign game, a game that changed as you played it. However, it was when Davio brought this design philosophy to a game that already had sold well, Pandemic, which is a game we're going to cover in a different episode, that the idea really took off, with Pandemic Legacy becoming, for a time, the highest rated board game on Board Game Geek. Players would make decisions that didn't just affect that session, but all future sessions of the game. And once you were done, you could frame that board as a memory of the great times you had with your friends. Now we see legacy games somewhat take off, but more or less what we see is an increase in narrative games that combine aspects of the legacy or campaign style. These would be games like The King's Dilemma or Oath, in which the results of the last game would have an impact on future games. I'm trying to talk in vague terms because I don't want to spoil anything, but an example would be if one player suddenly, by manipulation and getting people to side with them, gained the most influence on the board, and in the next game, they would then be in charge of making decisions, not the person who was in charge last game. This storytelling was something seen in RPGs, but legacy and campaign games gave a new way to play the story. Another great innovation is an app integration, with games using tablets and phones in truly interesting ways. The new additions of Descent and Mansions of Madness take the bookkeeping work out of the hands of players and integrate it in an app, making a more streamlined or at least more accessible system. The Unlock series, which is one group of escape room games, which is another innovation in and of itself, uses apps in interesting ways as well, with some puzzles using your phone as invisible ink readers, mini games, or just using the phone to play through the mission without having to tear up cards, like in its competitor, the Exit Game series. You also have games like Chronicles of Crime, in which allow you to scan QR codes on cards, and times you as you progress through the game. But where so much innovation comes from is Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform that you may remember I ripped on a little in episode two. For better or for worse, Kickstarter has absolutely transformed board gaming. Since its inception in 2009, Kickstarter has amassed over 1 
billion dollars from the games category alone. And yes, that was billion with a B. The idea is that creators on the platform create campaigns for projects, and then users called backers can give money towards projects being fully funded. Kickstarter offers a way for anyone to raise money in order to make their game, applying a 5% fee on the total amount of funds raised on successful projects and charging no one if projects are not to reach their goal by the deadline. What this has done is essentially bypass a lot of the steps that used to be necessary for would-be designers to get their design published, like pitching their ideas to publishers or having to completely fund the games themselves, hoping that people would buy enough of them for it to be worth it. Different games have exemplified what Kickstarter means in different ways, and depending on the blog or YouTube video you see, you'll generally see four games representative of the Kickstarter era of board games. The first is Alien Frontiers, which came out in 2010, and was one of the first board games to fund using Kickstarter. Another one is Zombicide, which came a couple years later and it was important because it grossed over $1 million, and a lot of that came down to the fact that you got lots of higher quality miniatures in the box. It also fostered in a sort of expansion-itis, as Tom Vassell called it. Basically, companies found out that people would pay lots of money for expansions and promos right as the game released. As a brief aside, Kickstarter really did change how expansions worked. Before this, expansions would come out much later for games. Some would add interesting modes like DLC for your favorite video games, and some would work more like patches, fixing something that they didn't catch in playtesting. Two expansions that are highly rated are Terraforming Mars' Prelude expansion, which speeds up the game since people complained about the length, and Viticulture's Tuscany expansion that, among other things, added a solo mode. But what games like Zombicide showed was that people would pay lots of money to have lots of additional content right from the start, even if there seemingly was so much stuff that 90% of people would never get through it all. And so what has happened is games that are kickstarted often now come with two or three expansions before the game has even arrived at people's doorsteps, in an almost anticipation of possible problems people may have with the game. Or what's worse is that some designers say that companies that aren't on Kickstarter now chop their game up a bit before publishing so they can publish 75% of the original design as the standard game and the final 25% as an expansion. So consumers have to buy the game and the expansion in order to get the game as the designer intended. But back to Kickstarter, another pivotal moment was the Exploding Kittens campaign. The campaign is the most backed project in terms of number of backers with over 219,000 and raised over $8 million. Part of the reason it did so well was that the creator was also the writer for the online comic The Oatmeal, so was a known entity with a following already. But the other was in the sense of community it fostered. During the campaign's lifetime, the sense of community among backers became so strong that enthusiastic backers named themselves the Kitten Corps. This fanbase not only had a name, but went on to develop a website, a Latin motto that reads Catalyst Crepitus Communitas, translating to Kittens Explosions Community. An official meal, taco cat with guac cat mole and refried kittens, a 21-line cadence, and much more. With such a strong community, the game developers were able to send out surveys and decks to be playtested to make their game something that was not only funded by fans, but also influenced by them. 
People were not only able to vote for campaigns they want to fund with their wallets, they were then able to influence that very same campaign. And how often do you see that? How often does it happen that you get to be part of the experience and give your opinions on how to better develop the product? It's something that Kickstarter strives to make possible, and ultimately they've done a good job of it. To this day, the most successful campaigns are those that have the best communication with backers and bring them into the fold for testing, opinions, and overall support. But the final one is important because it best represents the dream rags to riches story so many dream of on the platform, Gloomhaven. It went against the expansionitis by basically including the kitchen sink in the box. No, really, it's bigger than my kitchen sink. It included hundreds of hours of content. Both the sheer scope of it and how much it had in the box meant that no publisher would ever publish it because A, it was so big that logistics were difficult, but B, after someone bought that game, there were no expansions needed. It was this game that could please so many types of people with Eurogame mechanisms and so-called Ameritrash narrative. It's currently sitting at number one on Board Game Geek. A game that companies would have rejected outright and never have published was seen by the community as the best game ever made. And it was all done by one guy who worked tirelessly to design his perfect game, Isaac Childress. It wasn't a huge multi-million dollar company like Asmodee or Hasbro. It was a guy who started a small company to make it happen. It was the perfect Kickstarter story that others have tried to replicate. Kickstarter creators have figured out that they need to build hype, and lucky for them, the rise in board gaming had already laid a foundation. Starting with channels like Tabletop that had various celebrities playing board games, the Dice Tower that reviewed absolutely tons of known and unknown games and was an entry point for many future content creators, and Shut Up and Sit Down's humorous sketches mixed with sharp critiques, board games had made their way onto YouTube channels. Suddenly, Kickstarter creators had a way of building hype around their games, hiring YouTubers. And there were plenty of influential ones to pick from. Rules specialists like Rodney Smith or Paul Grogan. Playthrough specialists like Rado and Heavy Cardboard. And of course, reviewers. Certain ones would try to stay clear of Kickstarter, but became so much a part of the hobby that eventually almost every influential channel had at least a mention of a Kickstarter game, whether it be a review, preview, run-through, or rules explanation. And many more joined into the fray, some channels specializing exclusively on Kickstarter games available to hire so that possible backers could see how the game is played. And this has led to a lot of jobs in the industry. What games like Gloomhaven have shown is the innovation that can happen on Kickstarter that many companies wouldn't take a risk on otherwise. In fact, studies have shown that Kickstarter projects are more likely to implement novel combinations of mechanisms. And not only that, but these innovations are then imitated in subsequent games in the industry. Essentially, what these studies find is that crowdfunding campaigns are the starting point for many innovations in the hobby, and after bigger companies see that they can work, they copy it. The new cost-effectiveness of 3D printing has led to a boom in elaborate miniatures being utilized. Pledge tiers and stretch goals have led to a larger variety of material qualities, such as wood or metal, and an increasing focus on the aesthetic appearance of games have stemmed from the need to grab the attention of potential backers and build this hype. And as a consumer, this results in wider variety of genres, better looking games, and more creative rules and concepts. But this hasn't just happened on crowdfunding sites, it has affected the industry as a whole. Recently, Wingspan, a game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave about birds, crossed the million copies sold mark, a tremendous achievement for any game, let alone one that wasn't crowdfunded and wasn't a mass market game. And by mass market game, I mean like Monopoly or Scrabble. 
It not only showed that interesting themes could bring in new people to the hobby, but it also brought a woman designer to the forefront of the hobby. Hargrave became a celebrity designer, something that we have started to see more of on Kickstarter. The theming of birds rather than fantasy characters like dwarves or themes like running a company or sailing on the Mediterranean became a kind of gateway for people into the hobby. And it brought up conversations that had always been happening but have been growing in volume over the years. Theming and representation. As board gaming moves forward, I think that'll expand in a few ways. The first one being in the representation sphere. As more and more people have joined into the hobby, board games are reaching a wider audience, and we've seen more diversity among YouTubers, characters in games, and overall purchasing. Artisan's Splendid Veil is a great example, as it was a game that was tremendously successful on Kickstarter and featured four queer and trans people of color characters. The game itself designed by a non-binary designer. More personalities and a diversity of reviewers like Our Family Plays Games, Thinker Themer, and Cardboard East are changing the landscape that was dominated by white men only five years ago. And because of it, the games have been more interesting and culturally accurate, with board game studios now expected to hire cultural experts and advisors for their games. It's incredibly fun as a consumer because we are now getting more and more well-thought-out cultural games about cultures and societies I've never learned about before. It also means I can bring more people to my board game table and make them feel welcome. Even though COVID has lowered the amount of places, it's also exciting to see board game conventions and cafes pop up all over the world, further bringing people into the hobby. Essen in Germany, Gen Con in the US, even the annual Kenyan Board Games Con are all providing new travel destinations for gamers and those new to games. Conventions also allow for us to get excited about innovations in the hobby, and they are celebrations of the type of games in their area, as I mentioned earlier. Board game cafes were rising in number before COVID, with over 200 just in Beijing, China alone. These places provide community and places to form friendships. This is a benefit that has not been lost on sociologists, who have warned that the constant separation of our online world has created a trust crisis in the world today. The belief is that the lack of face-to-face communication causes a rift in human interaction, which in turn leads to a lack of empathy and other societal problems. Board game cafes are part of the solution to that problem, providing locations for people not only to gather for drinks and food, but to interact through competition or cooperation in fun and games. And this really is something that is important to think about. Let's compare them to video games. Video games clearly started out being heavily influenced by board games. Many of the earliest video games recreated tabletop games. Board game companies were major players in the early years of video games, and the first generation of game developers took many of their cues from board game designers. This was especially true for strategy games. During the earlier years of the game industry, strategy games were largely digital recreations of war games that added little more than help with computation and the opportunity for playing against a computer. It would take until the mid-1990s and the emergence of real-time strategy games before video games found a distinct voice of their own in this genre. But while video games have gone on to develop their own characteristics, the influence of video games on board game design remains limited even though some board games have used video game IPs like Dark Souls and Stardew Valley. In large part, this is because board games rely on players to operate the game, whereas video games can offload these duties onto the computer that's running the game. This means that video games do not need to remain simple to understand. They can have very complicated rules and mechanics and yet hide them from the player to make the experience easier to access. In contrast, as rules for board games get more complicated, the experience becomes one of administration rather than play. And it seems that people enjoy this difference in play, though, 
Many predictions were that the video game market would render board games redundant. But it seems that the core advantages, face-to-face play, physicality, and transparent rules are strong enough for board games. Jonathan Berkowitz of Hasbro mentioned it as a sort of counter-trend to digital and digital gaming. Our data, he says, shows that people want to get together, and parents especially use board games to connect with their kids. It's such a busy world, he goes on, that they sometimes have a hard time making the time, and games help make that time. It's not so much that people feel they are losing something, so much as we need to balance out the equation. Board gaming proved it during COVID. Because of COVID and the need for people to stay inside, board game sales have risen the past few years, with board games themselves rising 20% as an industry and tabletop RPGs growing 33%. Sites like Board Game Arena and Tabletopia thrived as spaces for people to connect over a board game while being thousands of miles away. Sales in stores grew so much that now hobbyist board games are sold in big box stores like Target and Walmart. Board games throughout time have shown who we are. On our journey through the history of board games, we have encountered how society and games interact. Senate showed how games can take on meaning past how it began. Chess and Backgammon showed how games can change based on the time period and culture they belong in. Monopoly and the Game of Life showed how games can represent our values both idealistically and literally. And now, modern board games are multifaceted in their lessons about society. Cooperative games and even Catan and other Euro games show how it's hard to succeed alone. And online gaming, conventions, and board game cafes accentuate this by providing communities for games to flourish. More than ever, board gaming is becoming more diverse, meaning that games can represent and teach us about each other and our past. As board gaming grows, we have to ask ourselves, in 50 years, if a board game dojo comes around and looks at this period in history, what will they say? What do we want games to say about ourselves? Because ultimately, the games we play, the games that succeed, they tell us a lot about ourselves. How do we want to be remembered? Thanks for listening today and throughout this series. We are new content creators continuing to figure things out. So please drop us some positive reviews on your podcast app and let us know what you want to hear about on our Twitter and Instagram. We hope you have an excellent rest of your day and weekend. We'll see you bye.